Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. Mary Adams, one of the first women to be executed at Tyburn in 1702, became a cautionary tale for young female servants after her story was published in the Newgate Calendar in the 1770s. Adams purportedly served a household in Reading. While there, she was seduced and made pregnant by the master's son. Her master reluctantly paid for her lying in. She surrendered her illegitimate child to perish poor relief and went to London, where she went into the service of a mercer in Cheapside. She was seduced by him as well, becoming pregnant again and left service for her lying in, which was financed by the baby's father. Later sources say that she exhorted him for 20 guineas by threatening to tell his wife. In an attempt to change her destiny, she used the last of her extorted sum to buy respectable garments and attract a suitor. It worked for a short time. She was able to court and marry a respectable man. It was not long, however, before her new husband discovered her past transgressions and absconded, joining the Royal Navy. At this point, Mary's life devolved into one of sex work and petty crime. In 1702, she stole a banknote and was quickly discovered. Adams was tried at the Old Bailey and executed at Tyburn on June 16, 1702. Though the story is based on real events, it was highly embellished over time and circulated widely in the 1770s and 1780s. Writers in the 1770s blamed her first master's son for her ultimate ruin. Quote, the man who thinks of seducing a poor girl should reflect that, besides the ruin of her, he involved her unhappy parents and friends in all the bitterness of woe. From this melancholy tale, then, let our men and maids be taught that stolen pleasure, though tempting to their irregular passions, are followed by a series of bad consequences. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Right. Seduction is framed as a gateway to bastardy, prostitution, theft, grief, and poverty. The Mary Adams story lay somewhere between an 18th century epistolary novel, think Samuel Richardson or Fanny Burney, the erotica of John Cleland, which is Fanny Hill, um, mm. an erotic novel, um, and the 19th century Gothic novel. So think Frankenstein is a good example. In fact, my favorite novel of all time, Slammerkin by Emma Donahue, features a very similar story. Um, and this is a, a contemporary novel. These kinds of stories make for great fiction, but lives like these were more common than one might think. Today, we are discussing the historical realities behind the stereotypical narrative of seduction, bastard birth, prostitution, and child abandonment in Georgian London. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. (laughs) 
we start, we want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially those on our auger and excavator level. Colin, Peggy, Christopher, and Lauren, your patronage helps us keep this podcast going. Friends, if you are not yet a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. In Georgian London, and, and when I say Georgian London, I mean uh, the period's about 1714 to 1830. So let's say the long 18th century, right? In Georgian London, authorities were struggling to manage the problem of illegitimate birth and child abandonment. Proposed for the purpose of tightening the patriarch's legal control over his family, Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753 formalized marriage ceremonies. Prior to the act, English couples could marry without the consent of their parents. This created all kinds of issues for inheritances and ultimately weakened a patriarch's control over his own estate. After the Hardwick Act, betrothed couples were required to publish bans or obtain a marriage license before the ceremony. Marriage bans are typically formal announcements of a couple's intent to marry, and the bans were required to be read out loud uh, in a couple's parish church for three weeks in a row before the marriage ceremony. Most historians believe that the Hardwick Act not only prevented concealed marriages, which is what those marriages were called when people kind of abscond, like they Mm -hmm. eloped and got married. Um, So it not only prevented concealed marriages, but it also prevented shotgun weddings. You just taught me something. What? Because I I knew about marriage bans and I knew that they had to be announced, like from Outlander. It's like a thing in Outlander Mm -hmm. and it's a thing in uh, Poldark. um, All 18th century couple wants to get married and (laughs) they can't. They have to get married really fast, yeah. so they have to, like, bribe the priest. And I was like, mm-hmm. what is the deal with that? That just seemed so odd to me, but you explained it, yeah. and now I feel so much smarter. It's from the Hardwick Act, and it, and it also took effect in uh, in the British colonies at the time in America. Um, okay. America, they did it, too. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so now you know. I do know. Um, but there's also, you could also, like, in bigger cities, they would have, like, a justice of the peace or whatever who could give you a marriage license, and you didn't have to do the bans. So Got people it. who, like, didn't weren't members of a certain parish or whatever, Mm -hmm. they could just do that. In other words, once legal marriage became more difficult to obtain, there were many more broken betrothals. This was a problem because traditionally, betrothal marks the point in a couple's courting when sex was culturally condoned. It was normal for people to become betrothed and then begin having sex before the marriage ceremony was performed. If the woman became pregnant, the couple could marry as soon as they found out, thereby legitimizing the child. What is more is that courts enforced, quote, promises of marriage as legal betrothal and could compel people to marry or at least compel the man to support the child. The Hardwick Act put impediments between betrothals, that is sexy time, and legal marriage. People kept behaving the same way they always had, courting, promising marriage, having sex, getting pregnant, but fewer marriages were actually happening. Right. So at the same time, young people were fleeing the countryside and relocating to London and other large cities to find work. And this was en masse. It's called the depopulation of the countryside. It's the opposite, or not the opposite, but the other side of urbanization, right? So um, people got together uh, and circumstances changed. Men were impressed into the Navy. Women contracted themselves out as indentured servants in the colonies. Couples worked in the same household and then started new jobs and lost touch. Um, There was a lot of mobility and insecurity. This made it even more difficult for people to legitimize their premarital sexual relationships. 
men became vulnerable to paternity suits, bastardy prosecutions, and fornication indictments. Women became vulnerable to bastardy fornication um, as well as illegitimate birth and, you know, single motherhood, basically. Rates of illegitimate birth soared. In 1680, 1.5% of all births were bastard births. By 1790, this percentage had risen to 5.1%. That means rates of illegitimate birth tripled. Interestingly, this increase in illegitimate birth coincided with a decrease in infanticide indictments and convictions. So historians have suggested that increased tolerance toward bastard birth uh, may have driven fewer women to infanticide. Um which is an interesting thing to think about. So that mm-hmm. people were having premarital sex just as much as they always did, mm-hmm. but they were less likely to kill their children because of it now, interesting. Is, is the thought. Yeah, yeah. No one, We're not quite sure. Um, one thing we know for sure is that rising illegitimacy rates resulted in a child abandonment crisis in London. The London Foundling Hospital was established by Thomas Coram, a wealthy philanthropist whose heart was broken by these issues. He was um, genuinely really wanted to help um, these people and was not judgmental. Um, He had the founding hospital built so that for like ultimate privacy so that women could come and leave their babies and leave and no one would necessarily know that's what they were doing. Oh, wow. The founding hospital was able to secure public funding for the period of 1756 to 1760 so they could hold a general reception. They had an open admissions policy during these years. So in those four years, 15,000 infants were surrendered to the hospital, and this amounted to 10% of all the births in London during those years. Wow. So can you imagine 10% of all infants born? That's abandoned a lot. Right. Um, so in 1760, the hospital was forced to institute a lottery system. They just had too many babies being dropped off. Um, women were required to submit petitions for the admission of their child um, so that they could be assessed for their worthiness of uh, the charity. They would say, I really would like you to admit my child. Uh, and then uh, worthy petitioners were then placed on a ballot. And we've talked about this a little before that the investigative thing that goes on when you have poor relief in the 18th and 19th centuries the poor relief authorities are, like, hardcore investigating this, kind of like with your pension mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. People right. are, yeah. they want to know. So um, these investigators would dig into these women's lives, and if there was any little tiny thing that was wrong, mm-hmm. um, if, if they said the baby was born on January 15th and the baby was born on January 25th, nope, gone. Like, wow. you're not, um, you know, that's how they assessed the worthiness, right? So at a monthly drawing then, um, it, women would draw a little ball I'm, sh- I'm assuming that they had like a it's like when a Yolanda, big round bowl or whatever. When Yolanda Vega <laughs> yeah. pulls I'm the a ball. Yolanda Vega. <laughs> okay, exactly. Um, and so that's they a would... reference to the New York State lottery system, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just everybody. I'm Yolanda be... Vega. <laughs> it would. Yeah. Oh my God, the 1990s. I can just remember that. Um, so at this monthly drawing, so if you were on the ballot, you would come to the monthly drawing. You had to show up in person, and you'd pick. Um, a ball out of a, a bowl, and if it was a white ball, it meant that the petitioner was entitled to surrender their child to the hospital. Drawing a black ball meant they couldn't be admitted. A lot of times they were put on a ballot for the next month, and you could just kind of keep going. Wow. It's kind of like yeah. with, like, um, kindergartens in, like, the Buffalo school mm-hmm, system. Mm-hmm. We have this, like, lottery system to for get your kid into kindergarten. Different schools, yeah. Right. Um, it's kind of like that. These numbers may sound alarming to us now, but many parents expected the surrender to be temporary. At the time of the infant's admission, the steward cut a piece of the infant's clothing off and then cut it in half. 
One half was pinned to the child's admission paperwork, called a billet. The child's mother kept the other half. She was asked to remember her child's admissions date. If or when she returned to claim her child, the swatches would be matched and the woman's child would be identified. 50% of mothers who surrendered their children also left an additional token, a locket, a poem, a piece of jewelry, a special coin, all different kinds of things. These tokens were sealed up in the billet and remained sealed until the claim was made. Literally, Annie's locket from Annie. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. Exactly. This yeah. is the story of Annie. It's Annie, right? Yeah, exactly. Except they don't Miss, sing. Miss Hannigan had the other half of the locket because her parents had died or whatever. So when her parents died, instead of matching up the lockets, Miss Hannigan was like, oh, "I'm just gonna hide this and keep it." Right? We love you. Because she's a crazy Hannigan. bitch. What? This is the 18th century. Yeah. If you met Marissa, how, how many different kinds of cloth were babies being? I know. I thought that was odd too. That they would be able to identify. It wasn't the, the different right kinds baby. of cloth. It was the cut. They cut. They would cut them. So if the cuts matched up, and it was the exact same fabric, the exact same age of fabric, and the exact same cut, they were pretty sure that it was the same thing. Your clothes may be Bowramly. They stand out a mile, but brother. You're wait, wait a second. Fully We've already dressed sung this song. Smile. We already sang this song on an I know, episode it's once. It's a fashion this song. This is like what we do, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> We You're break out fully in, dressed without a smile. Who break cares out what Annie they're wearing? Music. I know, it's one of my favorite. Anyway, so it Let's is a lot like Annie. It's a thing. The Foundling Hospital has um, a museum now that you can go to, and you can see a lot of these tokens, mm. and it's just, like, heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's yeah. just amazing that they have these material objects of, you know, these women who, you know, generally cannot be found on very many records. You know, we have, like, a material object of theirs. It's amazing. Even when they came from happy, loving homes, poor and working class children were often separated from their parents at young ages by necessity. Many spent their childhoods in the households of family or friends, in parish workhouses, as bonded apprentices to local tradesmen, or in the home of a nurse, which a nurse doesn't need to mean um, that she breastfed the child. It generally meant that she cared for the child. So it's kind of an early iteration of foster care. Um Sometimes they breastfed the child, sometimes they didn't. Um, these arrangements were made for poor children by their local parish, which collected poor taxes and assisted families who could not support themselves. Plebeian girls could be sent out to service as early as the age of eight. While they were young, they labored in a trade or in a domestic setting, but they were also taught to read and write sometimes. Their periods of service varied, but they were usually bound apprentices until their early teens. Once apprentices or servants were teenagers, they often entered a new period of service, either continuing the trade they had grown up around. So if a boy was apprenticed out to a blacksmith or whatever, he would become a journeyman blacksmith, right? Uh, or entering domestic service. Um, and this was more common for girls. So if a girl was bound out to a dressmaking shop and she cut threads at a dressmaking shop all day. Um, once she became an older teenager, she would actually, like, start making dresses, right? And this was a very vulnerable time for young servants, especially female servants. They were of reproductive age, they were unmarried, and they're working in close quarters with men. The vast majority of women who bore illegitimate children in the 18th century did so at this stage in their lives. 
Most of them were not born in London, having come from the surrounding countryside or the European continent. Um, they did not have a supportive social network to surveil their every move, you know, to, to make sure they're following courting rituals and things, um, or to aid them when they needed it. This time was also one of surprising autonomy and mobility. Women servants tended to serve for many years due to the late age at first marriage, an average of 27.3 years old at the time that they they first married, um, and also because of their inability to support themselves in any other way. Most servants were on annual contracts, so they moved from one household to another throughout their teens and early 20s. In some ways, this could be a freeing experience. The prevalence of domestic service contributed to new courting rituals and sexual license that was less common in the 17th century. Elite women were less likely to experience this culture because they tended to live with their parents, marry slightly younger, and move directly from the authority of their fathers to the authority of their husbands. Right. So that's perhaps one advantage that poorer people had Mm -hmm. over um, elites. So even though they had less freedom, elite women were more protected from the advances of men. Some servant women were, quote, seduced and impregnated by their masters or their master's son. We should take a minute to define how we're using the term seduction, I think, here. In the 18th century, the word meant something very different than it means today. Seduction refers to the incremental cajoling and convincing uh, that a man performed on resistant women to eventually get them to engage in a sexual relationship with them. Something like winning them over, kind of. But the problem is that the lines between courtship, which would be a consensual relationship, rape, which would be sexual assault, right? Uh, and seduction are very blurred. Mm-hmm. Seduction was understood as a sexual event that, in present times, could fall anywhere on the scale of sexual consent. Right. Master-servant relationships made this even more complicated. If your livelihood depended on your acquiescence to sexual advances, then was it really consent? Okay, so you may recall from my episode on rape in early America that came out um, first in this series. So, you know, these two episodes sort of go together in a sense um, in this idea of seduction and consent and rape and what all of those things mean and how blurry and, and confusing that can be. But anyway... Uh, Like Mary Adams, our our opening cautionary tale, some of the women who abandoned their children to the Foundling Hospital were seduced by their master or their master's son. In 1811, for example, Frances Small concealed her pregnancy, fending off the suspicions of her mistress until giving birth to a baby girl. After the birth, Small revealed that the baby belonged to her master, Mr. Lindley. Her mistress, Mrs. Lindley, appeared to believe her and was not particularly angry with her. She served as a reference when Small petitioned for her child to be admitted into the foundling hospital. Mrs. Lindley might have been able to contain her anger at Small because she knew that the sexual relationship she had with her master was a coercive one. She knew that her husband was a cheating bastard. Right. Well, the investigators are just kind of like, yeah, she's not very angry or anything. She just, you know, is like, well, that sucks. (laughs) So I sort of feel like... Because she, she probably recognized knew. that yeah. it was a power. She was living in this household, and she probably knew this girl didn't really have any choice. So she, um, but at the same time, she also didn't confront her husband either. So right. f you, no. Well, I don't know, kind of. Uh, masters typically discharged pregnant, unmarried servants living in the household. They occasionally gave them some kind of severance, right? Paying for their lying in uh, or petitioning for their admission to a charity hospital. Uh, most often, pregnant servants were just ejected from the home 
you know, with nothing. This was relatively new. Since 1633, domestic service regulations had prevented masters from terminating the employment of their pregnant servants without just cause. So if a householder wanted to sack his unmarried and pregnant servant, he had to secure approval from a court justice to make it a lawful discharge. In 1777, Chief Justice Lord Mansfield ruled that bastardy, or conceiving a child as a result of premarital sex or fornication, um, ruled that it was criminal. Masters, therefore, had every right to dismiss their pregnant, unmarried servants for their crimes. Mansfield found that forcing masters to keep their servants on, quote, in a family where there are young persons to be both scandalous and dangerous. For many women, the termination of their employment was the first event in a sequence of tragic events that destroyed their lives. Right, and I should add that Mansfield was very conservative about this. So um, this was not actually, a, a, his ruling was had not, it wasn't about bastardy. He was just saying um, he had a, a case that he was reviewing where a master dismissed a pregnant unmarried servant um, and didn't get approval from a justice and he was like yeah you can totally do that because she is a criminal uh you know and you're allowed to sack people for committing a crime so he kind of wiggled around um the you know sort of changed the idea of of what unmarried pregnancy meant in a master-servant relationship um but for the most part in the 18th century the attitude toward bastardy was a lot more tolerant than you would probably think. So Mm -hmm, I don't mean to mm -hmm. make, like, just him saying he was just kind of fuddy-duddy. There's no better example of this than a woman named Mary Davis. So first of all, let's establish that almost every woman in 18th century England was named Mary. Um, This is not the same Mary that we started with at the top of the show, different Mary. This is 70 years later. There's going to be like eight or nine more Marys. So just keep, we'll, we'll try to stick with their last name, right? Mary Davis was a small child in the 1770s in Herefordshire, England, when her father died suddenly. Unexpected death often destroyed working class families, but her mother was fortunate enough to marry a, quote, very honest, industrious man of the name of Hopkins. Hopkins was a mere laborer, and as hard as he tried, he was unable to support his wife and new family. It was decided that Mary would travel to London and go into service as a maid in the home of Hugo Meynell, a celebrated fox hunter. I put um, that in for you, Sarah, because I think yeah. you would like it. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do like it. And his wife, Anne, in Charles Street, Berkeley Square. That's how he is in the, like, directories. It says Hugo Meynell, a celebrated fox hunter. Like, that's... When you like, looked him up in the phone book, basically, it right. was, like, his title. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. So I just had to include it. Because... I love that. Yeah, that's great. Um, Anyway, uh, so he was good at fox hunting. Young Mary, no more than 12 or 13 years old, caught the eye of the Maynell's footman. He seduced and impregnated her. Years later, Mary wrote that he, quote, took advantage of her innocence and inexperience. When the Maynells discovered her pregnancy, they terminated her employment to avoid scandal. And then they went fox hunting. (laughs) Hopefully. Not only had Mary gotten pregnant outside of marriage, but the father of her child was a married man, and they had carried on their liaison under the noses of their master and mistress. Apparently, they were not very good at uh, sniffing out things other than foxes. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, out of a sense of guilt, the footman financed her lying in. In the 18th century, women were typically confined to bed rest for weeks before and after their infant's birth. But they needed somewhere to stay and they needed to be have a nurse paid for. So this is what he paid for. 
After giving birth to a baby girl, Davis sent her own child to nurse in the countryside at an inexpensive rate and found a place as a wet nurse with a wealthy family. She probably paid more than half of her wages for the nursing of her child. After six months, the infant she'd been hired to nurse was ready to be weaned and Davis was let go. Having nowhere to live, Davis went to the village of Tottenham where her child had been uh, living. She found lodging there and attempted to find another place as a wet nurse. She quickly lost her milk, however. So with no income, she could no longer pay for her child to be nursed, so she retrieved her and they lived in poverty. Her landlady was initially helpful, but over time grew resentful of Davis's lack of income. One day, she threatened to throw Davis and her baby out into the cold, asking her how it was possible that Davis had no income, since girls with worse faces than Davis had often pinched up a great deal. Oh, my. <laughs> mm. Desperate, Davis turned to prostitution to preserve her immediate existence by courting infamy. Davis worked as a prostitute for several months. After a short time, she was able to surrender her daughter to the care of the St. James Parish and return to her mother's house in the countryside. She soon realized that she was again pregnant. In her words, quote, the sad effect of the prostitution she had been so barbarously driven to. Ashamed, Davis left her mother's house again and lived off the charity of others in London. During this time, she learned that her daughter had been placed with an infamous parish nurse who was known for beating her nurslings. Mary petitioned to have the child moved to a different nurse without success. Her child died shortly thereafter in a workhouse from whooping cough with a black eye and a broken collarbone. Oh, that's terrible. Davis gave birth to her second child and quickly saw a place as a wet nurse. Determined to do better for her second child than she had for her first, Davis sought for it to be admitted to the foundling hospital. I call it an it because she doesn't ever say if it's a boy or a girl. They just kind of called infants its, and then they would be like, is it a female it or a male it? <laughs> Sometimes they would say that, and it's like... Like, they just, it's like, why don't you just use she and he then? <laughs> but they were not real people yet. They were just infants. Um, <laughs> April agrees. Uh, Mary Davis's story shows how easy it was for women uh, to be in a situation where they must resort to prostitution. In the Covent Garden Journal, a literary magazine, the story of prostitute Mary Parkington, another Mary, right, um, says she was, quote, a very beautiful girl of 16 years of age and, quote, was made public after a raid on a brothel owned by Philip Church. So there's this raid, and then this literary magazine is like, hey, let's write about this raid, some hard-hitting news, right? Uh, Parkington had been the daughter of a hatter whose life was unremarkable until she was, quote, seduced by a young sea officer who left her within a day or two, end quote. The officer left her destitute and defiled, so she dared not go home because she was so ashamed. So she thought she was going to get married to this guy, and then he was like, JK, and then he just went on a ship somewhere, right? When she was begging on the streets, uh, a woman gave her a five-pound note, clean clothes, and a place to sleep. As it turned out, the woman was a procuress, and she expected Parkington to prostitute herself to pay back her debt, um, which she, that's when she started doing the prostitution was to pay back the debt, and then you just get in it, and she can't get out, and she yeah. never left. Oh. Mariners, like the one who seduced poor Mary Parkington, often feature in stories of seduction, illegitimacy, and spousal abandonment. Given the centrality of maritime life to the British Empire, it's hardly surprising. There were about 75,000 sailors living in London at any given time in the second half of the 18th century. Britain struggled to recruit sailors from its massive population during this period. They never comprised more than 1% of the city's population. 
This small group was culturally, if not demographically, significant. London's parish poor relief records are filled with women abandoned or widowed by sailors and disabled mariners unable to support themselves or their relatives. The city was home to merchant mariners as well as demobilized Navy sailors who wrought havoc over the city in the second half of the century. Both skilled merchant mariners and unsuspecting vagrants were coerced or kidnapped on the streets, impressed into the Navy, and made to serve the king until their death, escape, or demobilization. Naval impressment had a long history, but it was accelerated after 1688 as Britain expanded its empire and was not discontinued until 1815. Historian Denver Brunsman writes, The Royal Navy was the centerpiece of Britain's fiscal military state. The service received more investment than any other government division, enough to make it the largest industrial organization in the Western world in the 18th century. Right. And so this is this whole culture of like mariners and, and seamen. It's like it's ridiculously common and it almost comes to a point where it's like, why are all why are all of the people who are abandoning these women they're all mariners um and i think part of it is that people would just say oh i'm a married woman but my husband's out to sea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean yeah. unless someone's checking the, the the parish register then they don't really know whether you're telling right. the truth or not so they probably got a bad rap <laughs> at the right. time so grass widows, right? So this is what um, spouses of seafaring men came to be called. And grass widows refers to the kind of the slang of them saying that, like, being on shore was being on grass. I just watched a show where the, oh, maybe. there was, like, a it was set during this time period, and the sailor just kept referring to being back on grass. Oh, maybe, yeah. It was the way they talked about being ashore. Oh, that's cool. I actually did I just, I don't know. I thought, I don't know what I thought. But that makes sense. They're standing on grass mm-hmm. and then their partners mm-hmm. elsewhere on the shore yeah. or in this um, sea, right? Yes. Um, so uh, grass widows, uh, as the spouses of seafaring men came to be called, feature heavily in sea ballads such as Sweet Paul of Plymouth, wherein a sailor's wife dies while he's at sea. In a popular print published uh, in the Oxford Magazine in October 1770 called The Press Gang or English Liberty Displayed, uh, a man's wife protests his kidnapping by a press gang. The captain chastises her, quote, let them starve and be damned. The king wants men. Haul him on board, you dogs, end quote. This highly dramatized rendering does not accurately depict the activities of press gangs in Georgian London, but its depiction of spousal separation suggests that this occurrence was one that was familiar to ordinary Londoners and lamented by them. The captain's words acknowledge the vulnerability of the partners of seafaring men. They appear in poor relief records regularly. Elizabeth Gardner was reduced to poverty in 1773 when, quote, she had the misfortune to lose or loss, it it says, uh, her husband, who died last summer on board the ship Unity from Newcastle upon Tyre, going up the Baltic to Petersburg, leaving her a widow and then with child. In February 1774, she surrendered her infant boy to the London Foundling Hospital to find work. That same year, Mary Morris became pregnant by a lover in their hometown some ways from the city. He shortly thereafter moved to London and encouraged her to follow. Once she arrived in the city, heavily pregnant, he abandoned her by going off to sea. She gave birth in poverty, without friends or family to support her, and without a legal settlement in any of London's parishes. She, too, surrendered her child to the foundling hospital. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do... Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. 
Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Most unwed mothers went into domestic service or did some kind of manual labor. It was difficult for single mothers or deserted wives to make enough money to provide for their children. They felt that the parish foster system or founding hospital was their children's only chance for survival. Prostitution was always a risk and may have been more common than it is today. Uh, Tim Hitchcock, he's a historian of poverty in the 18th century London, um, he has so many great examples of this in his book, Down and Out in the 18th Century London. Um, and uh, one is too good not to share. I just had to. <laughs> so a woman named Mary Price, again, Mary number five or six or whatever, right, <laughs> was married to a tallow chandler in St. Martin in the Fields, which is just kind of a neighborhood um, in London. She did occasional begging in West London for extra cash. She told a neighbor that she occasionally prostituted herself to a prominent local man named Francis Gotobed. <laughs> you can't make it's it's a for it's for real <laughs> but reality is stranger than fiction right like you couldn't that right, would just right, be right. people would be like no that's <laughs> not it no that's his name so um she prostituted herself to francis go to bed um and in the words of her neighbor quote she had had many a shilling and six pence of him and had it not been for him she would have been half starved end quote so even you know women who like were married and had husbands who worked um you know, the economy was such that they could sometimes just be so desperately poor and in debt and everything that casual prostitution was sometimes just like how you made it work, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, Harris's yeah. list of um, Covent Garden ladies, it's a guide to the brothels in London, provides a similar point of view. Jack Harris was a pimp, an entrepreneur who sold his brand to a Grub Street, and this is like the 18th century version of a tabloid. Mm, Grub okay. Street is like, it's like lowbrow press, right? Got it, yeah. Um, so he sold his brand to a Grub Street writer, um, and the guide, bearing his name, was published between 1757 to 1795. Its sex-positive pages are filled with confident and engaging women who treat whoring like it was their chosen profession, right? Mm-hmm. And this makes me want to tell everyone to go watch Harlots because it's the best. But that show, it's an 18th century brothel brothel in London, and these women are like, yeah, I want to be a whore because I make good money. Mm-hmm. And they're all trying to, you know, move up from whoring to, like, being a kept woman of, like, a fancy man, you know? Sounds good to me. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> um, even though there was this kind of sex positive and, like, empowered woman type of idea of mm-hmm. prostitution, um, there were also other uh, people in society who thought that, prostitution was kind of the very worst consequence of mm-hmm. a gradual slide into debauchery. Right, 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 right. Not positive. So many of the prostitutes who appear in print at this time, they were initially seduced by some scoundrel, like, who abandoned right. her after he debauched her, right? And there's this print by um, Thomas Hogarth, who is a satirical uh, engraver. Right. And it's called The Progress of a Harlot. And it shows this very... Um, innocent, naive woman coming from the countryside, coming to London for work. Um, And she is, uh, you know, targeted by a procuress who runs a brothel, and she turns her into a prostitute. But the first step of that is this initial seduction. And then once she's seduced, 
she, it's all done. She's going to be a prostitute for the rest of her life, die of venereal disease, end of story. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So there's this kind of side narrative of uh, seduction as the very first step yes. in, you know, leading you down to prostitution. In women's accounts compiled at London's Magdalen houses, and, and these were reform institutions for penitent prostitutes, we can see how horrifying it might have been for women to engage in sexual commerce while they had custody of their children. One former prostitute described a scene when her child witnessed her breakdown after an altercation with a rough John, uh, writing this. I was weeping over my child, who, frightened at my agonies, was more clamorous in his grief, hung around my neck and screamed. He knew not why, only he perceived the men were the cause of my affliction. Oh, how terrible. I know. I know. It's just, like, heart-wrenching. I know. Um, Many prostitutes who had children were victims of seduction or rape or abandonment um, from a partner. Right. Like I said, they the way that the word seduction was used, we don't know what they mean. Right. And even sometimes when they say, oh, my husband abandoned me, went off to sea, he could have been impressed by into the Navy against his will. Right. You know, so... so the abandonment uh, even is a yeah. little the, fuzzy. Exactly. Yeah. So the culpability of who, you know, it's not yeah. exactly clear, right? Um, so... You know, these women, uh, they they struggled to provide um, for their children after the fact of, you know, this big event, right? So most women in this situation eventually resorted to begging. For one former prostitute, she recalls the day she realized that begging was not enough. Quote, One time when I was reduced to the last extremity, myself almost starved and my child in the same condition and piercing my heart with his cries. As the last effort, I dressed myself neatly and went out to try if I should have any better success as a higher degree of beggar. I returned home to my famished child as soon as possible. I confess my recompense was great and seeing the dear babe almost at the gates of death revive as he eat and the smiles of joy by degrees take place of the anguish which the pains of hunger had imprinted on his lovely face, end quote. So she's basically saying higher degree of beggar was a prostitute, you know, yeah. like so she went out and instead of just begging, she was like, you know, let's... I'll do, do more. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you yeah. more if you give me more money. Um, you know, and it's just really uh, sad because moralists and reformers were, you know, they did understand that that this kind of thing was a slippery slope, mm-hmm. but they didn't. They thought of it in terms of sexual purity mm-hmm. and not in terms of economic imperative. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so you can see why uh, so many women surrendered their children to poor houses and charity hospitals. London was labor-rich, and it was almost impossible to find work that allowed women to parent their own children at the same time. Their parting scenes were understandably heartbreaking. One former prostitute asserted that providing for her child kept her in the sex trade, even though it ground her down mentally and physically. She said, quote, As soon as my shattered brain grew a little composed, anxiety for my child made me desirous to preserve a life which seemed to promise me nothing but misery. But what I would not have undergone rather than leave that dear babe friendless and defenseless in a world which now was very low in my estimation. Another woman surrendered her child so she could continue working in a brothel. She felt selfish for grieving the loss of her child to the system, recollecting, I delivered my child where I was ordered, which I confess cost me many tears, for the tenderness of a mother got the better of true maternal love, which should have made me rejoice in the separation. 
She felt if she possessed true maternal love, she would privilege the needs of her child over her own affection for him. That's that's just so heartbreaking to think that she's beating herself up for crying over leaving her child at this at this hospital. Right. Um because if she was truly if she if she possessed true maternal love, she would be glad because her child was in a better position. She wouldn't right. be feeling sorry for herself. And I think that's coming from the reformer aspect. So yeah. she's in a you know, a, a society they're for reform prostitutes and they're being like telling hey, her that your child is better off without you right. and if you were a real mother, you would be happy when yeah. you surrendered him yeah. instead of you know what I mean? Yeah. Super sad. That is that, I mean they are trying sad. to help, but it's also like Really sad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many uh, women surrendering their children to the Foundling Hospital only did so after attempting to pay for childcare with their low wages. So this is usually a last resort, right? Yeah. Um, Mary Briglin, I know, the fifth or sixth Mary, <laughs> right? Um, in uh, 1800, she sent her child to an inexpensive wet nurse whom she paid five shillings per week. That's kind of like the the rock bottom um, almost. Uh that you could pay someone to nurse your child. Mm -hmm. Um, The only other jobs she could find as servant to Mr. March, an upholsterer, paid only slightly more than the cost to nurse the child. Sometimes women paid a wet nurse or dry nurse more than their wages. So these solutions obviously didn't last very long. I I understand the feeling (laughs) (laughs) based on some of the things that I paid for daycare. Good gravy. And I think sometimes they got into it thinking – like, maybe I can get a raise or, like, yeah. um, you know, yeah. like, maybe I can somehow make it work. Yeah, I'll get a second um, job, I'll do And then this. there's also the thing of if they worked, they could say, I'm working hard to do this. I'm mm-hmm. not begging on the streets. Right. I'm working even though I'm netting zero. Right. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. We've been we've been having this conversation <laughs> yeah. about childcare expense for yep. a very, very long time. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Some mothers were able to arrange to keep their children with them, but only with financial assistance from their parishes or the foundling hospital. In 1774, Sarah Flinder, is that our first Sarah? Yeah. Uh, the mother Sarah. of an illegitimate child secured a spot on the ballot for the foundling hospital lottery. According to several references, Flinder's child was fathered by a journeyman gardener and a widower in the countryside who was already struggling to support his own children. A woman named Mrs. Wright engaged her as a wet nurse, but before the lottery was held, Flinder was able to convince Mrs. Wright to allow her to keep the child with her. In a letter to the board members of the Foundling Hospital, Mrs. Wright's representative explained that Mrs. Wright agreed only because Flinder's milk was copious and of excellent quality. Mrs. Wright was also demanding compensation of two shillings six pence per week to offset the cost of keeping the infant in the household. Whitworth volunteered to pay half the cost of keeping Flinder's child and asked the Foundling Hospital to pay the other half, since it was less expensive than admitting the child and paying for its nursing outright. Right. And I should say, Whitworth is just, um, like, a local notable that that um, somehow they got him to, like, plead Into on their feed. behalf. Yeah. And, and he said, fine, I'll take, you know, care of half of this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's... It's um, kind of heartwarming sometimes to see, you know, that that some people, they really cared about mm-hmm. when a woman was like, I cannot give up my child, mm-hmm. that they could help. Kind of all work together, too. It's right. lots of people kind I mean, of coming to this. I mean, it's super uncommon. <laughs> For the most right. part, they're like, well, you don't have a choice. Just, yeah. You know. Um, but it's nice to see that it did happen. 
Um, the growing need for inexpensive wet nursing for the children of working class women strained parish poor relief systems and yielded very high infant mortality rates. One powerful example is that of parish wet nurse Hannah Poole. Poole was cited by philanthropist Jonas Hanway when he appealed to Parliament for them to pass the Act for Better Regulation of the Parish Poor Children. And this was in 1767. Hannah Poole was paid by the parish of St. Clement Danes to host pauper women during their lying in and then to wet nurse their illegitimate children after the births. Of the 23 children entrusted to Nurse Poole, 18 died in her care. Two were discharged and three survived their infancies. God. So, um, and that's actually the same parish that uh, Elizabeth Brownrigg worked for, that she took her apprentices from. Um, in the Brown Rig episode about um, child abuse. So Hanway wrote, quote, and this is about Hannah Poole that he's writing, quote, she is certainly not qualified for a nurse to keep children alive, though she seems to understand the art of lulling infants to their everlasting rest. This woman began to prepare shrouds on the 19th of March, 1765, and her last burial was on the 25th of January, 1766. Hanway's activism prompted the redirection of resources uh, away from parishes and toward the Foundling Hospital, which worked with the numerous London parishes to build a network of wet nurses. Um, these were later called baby farms living um, three to five miles from the city center. This resulted in a marked improvement in infant mortality rates among parish infants. And in um, Hannah Poole's defense, many of the infants that she got were already near death. So um, she occasionally had women who were lying in, in in there, and so then she would have those children. But oftentimes the founding hospital, this is right after general reception started, they were taking in infants who were like at death's door already, who right. were like half starved. They would send them to her. Yeah. And then the, the so death it looks rate, like she's it, murdering them. But, right. I mean, yeah. they didn't actually think she was actually murdering them. They yeah. thought that she was um, careless yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. neglectful. Right. Uh, in reality, historians think that it was, they were just like sending her almost dead babies. Um, oh. A lot of the times, very sad. Jeez. Mm hmm. The visibility of bastard birth and foundling surrenders made bastard children more vulnerable to kidnapping. Some people, some ridiculous people, reasoned that since their mothers could not care for them properly or they might surrender them to the parish or the almshouse or that their mother's mistake of having a baby out of wedlock made her an unfit mother, it, it kind of legitimized potentially kidnapping these children and taking them away from their mothers. For example, in 1802... Uh, and apologies in advance because now we have two more Marys to add to <laughs> in our list. one story. Yeah, two Marys in like, one. What the heck? Okay. Uh, a woman named Mary Brown appeared at the workhouse at St. Andrew's Parish, Holborn. She asked if any of the women who had just lain in were in need of a wet nurse's place. One woman, Mary Johnson, said she would love one but was currently suckling her infant and didn't want to part with it. Brown said she knew an excellent wet nurse that would take the child for cheap so that the mother could serve as a wet nurse and charge premium rates. So we're going to wet nurse out one baby so that the mom can go wet nurse another baby. Yeah, it's a tertiary nurse, it's That's, called. It's pretty weird. The next day, Brown returned and told Johnson that her baby's new wet nurse wanted to meet the child. Johnson was too weak from childbirth to take the baby, so Brown offered to take the baby and bring it back afterward. Johnson handed the baby over to Mrs. Brown and never saw the child again. Right. And nowadays you'd be like, duh. Like you don't like give someone you just met yesterday your baby. But yeah, no, not a good plan. <laughs> right. Not. Um, but I mean, this happened all in the workhouse and there's all these poor relief authorities again, there. Yeah. Like, but again, like 
you know, it's just like systems of power and these women who are in extremely vulnerable positions and sort of desperate for mm-hmm. this potential job she might right. get, uh, you know. It, and it, it happened a lot. People Makes would it take it. like she's an idiot, but right. like she's a rock in a hard place sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. it's a coercion thing. Um, and people knew that women in these situations were desperate. So right. they preyed on that, Right. The murder of Elizabeth Rainbow, which is the best name, mm-hmm. um, she was a real woman, um, is interesting. She was a real woman. A real woman. It's interesting because um, this kind of shows that this is a cycle of vulnerability, right? So yeah. Elizabeth Rainbow was both a foundling and a pregnant servant at, at different times in her life. Um, in 1768, a man named John Bolton applied to the Ackworth Country Hospital for two apprentices. So Ackworth um, was a branch of the founding hospital that was out um, near York um, in Yorkshire. And um, this is one of several country hospitals. They kind of had like they built a network out of the one London founding hospital. He received one boy apprentice and one girl apprentice named Elizabeth Rainbow. So these are these children were, I think, like 12 years old. Six years later, the Founding Hospital in London received correspondence from the managers at Ackworth. They'd been contacted by neighbors of John Bolton, so neighbors of this man who took these apprentices. They'd not seen his 18-year-old servant girl for days. He told them she'd ran away. But they had heard rumors that she might have been pregnant, um, and even more rumors that he was the father. So they were worried that something had happened to her, and they, they knew that that Ackworth had, like, records on her and records of the apprenticeship. Um, and so they went to Ackworth to say, like, hey, did the girl come back here? Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Right. right? People yeah. are asking questions because it just doesn't seem right. The hospital notified the constable, John Hall, uh, and Mr. Cholmey, who's the justice of the peace in Bolton's county. Um, the justice issued a warrant for Bolton's arrest before they began an investigation. So, like, the moment that the justice signed the warrant, um, Bolton barged into the courthouse and demanded a warrant for his neighbor's arrest on account of defamation. So he's like, my neighbors are saying I murdered her. Mm. Um, Once he realized they had already issued a warrant against him, Bolton raced home on his horse, um, but the constable arrived at the same time. They went directly down into the cellar, which they heard had just recently been dug and filled in. Dun, dun, dun. Buried under the dirt, they found the body of Elizabeth Rainbow. The coroner's inquest included an autopsy, which found that Rainbow was four to five months pregnant and had been strangled to death with a makeshift garrote he fashioned out of a stick and a thin cord. At his trial, prosecutors discovered that John Bolton had been covertly dosing Rainbow with abortifacients that had been making her ill. Of course, we don't know exactly what happened, but investigators suspected that when the abortifacients were ineffective, Bolton resolved to murder Elizabeth Rainbow and hide her body so that his wife and neighbors would not discover that he had fathered a child by her. You know, an easier way to go about this would have been to, I don't know, just not rape your servants. (laughs) Right. Uh, Just a thought. Right. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Ounce of prevention or whatever. Bolton was found guilty and sentenced to hang. He was also dissected and anatomized after his death. Um, And if you think back to or if you've listened to our episode on Elizabeth Brownrigg um, or our episode on the history of pathology, you'll recall that this was a common punishment called postmortem harm. And this actually we talked about this in my episode, too, on rape, that this was something that did sometimes happen um, to uh, slaves who were convicted and executed for rape as well. Right. Mutilation in, in the United States. 
It was supposed to be humiliating, but it could also provide anatomical specimens for medical scientists. Right. So they're like two birds, oh, right? Oh, yeah. In this case, I don't know. I'm kind of okay with it. but <laughs> <laughs> With him, yeah. Because he's a jerk. Um, so, you know, it's... It's just, you know, I bring up that case only to show that, that this is cyclical. So a lot of the yes, children that go into the, the, the founding hospital, they're apprenticed out. Yeah. And think about, like, some of them are apprenticed out as young as, like, three or four years old. So can you picture a three or four-year-old, zero parents, you're, you're working with your boss or whatever. I mean, right. your, your, your master kind of becomes, like, a, a parent. parent yeah. But you don't have, you're not going to have the same understanding of life you're not gonna have the same um education the same uh, you know affection uh and things like that mm-hmm. that a child would have who's growing up with uh, loving parents and a right. functional um home that right they don't want for anything um so kind of like what ends up happening this shows the mechanism of like how structural problems how structural poverty and um mm-hmm. In America, it's a lot of time very racialized. Absolutely. Um, in, in this situation, it kind of shows, like, how the poor are sort of continually kept down in this cycle of having no power, having even less power, losing even more power when someone exerts their power over them again. You know, right. like, she had nowhere to go when she was being raped. She had nowhere to go when she was sick and he was feeding her covertly um, abortifacients. Right. She had nowhere to go when he murdered her. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, you know, it's just really yeah. sad. Yeah, she had no outlet. Right. And and then it, you know, so that basically, and if he hadn't murdered her, you know, the same thing that happened to her, as soon as, like, you know, the same would have happened. happened other people's people would have happened to right. her. And right. And she would have handed off her baby that she had mm-hmm. by John Bolton to the family hospital. And then again, to again. try to find money right. and then possibly gone into prostitution. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. this is how these stereotypes kind of happen. Yeah. That there are, there's this thought that there's this serial bastard bears, just women who just keep having bastard children. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that women couldn't support themselves without being attached to a man. Right. And if you had the misfortune of getting pregnant before you were attached to a man, then you're fucking screwed. You're not, yeah. you know, being attached to a man. Unless you're like Mary Adams in the opening cautionary tale and uh-huh. she tricked someone into marrying right. her, right? Yeah. So it's um it's kind of a vicious cycle. Absolutely. So after all this heartbreak and darkness, <laughs> um, I I wanted to end today's episode with a somewhat happier story and an example of, you know, like that it wasn't all doom and gloom and not everybody sucked all the time, right? <laughs> um, so as we suggested earlier in the show, sometimes master and servant uh, relationships were consenting and intimate and positive forces on both of their lives. Even better, they sometimes worked together to find happiness despite all the stigma and the scandal that resulted from seductions and bastard births. So around 1748, Esther Fury, which is like an awesome name, around um, 1748, Esther Fury became pregnant with the child of her master, Richard Lane. After the child's birth, Lane arranged for Fury um, to serve as a wet nurse to another family, and it's unknown where their child went during this time. Um, He was probably sent to a nurse nearby. He might have gone with his mother, but that was really, really rare, so we're not totally sure. Um, Once the child was older, though, he was returned to the Lane household, and he was introduced to the family as Lane's nephew. 
Once Fury's tenure as wet nurse was over, she returned to live with Richard Lane for nine more years. Hmm. So the three of them are living together. Uh, their relationship no longer appeared to be romantic because uh, Esther Fury, she married twice during the time that she lived in his household, not to Lane, hmm. to other men. So, um, you know, she was living as servant for, with him or something like that. Um, and she married um, and then was widowed and then married again. So I like to think that Fury and Lane might have found a way to have an unconventional family life that allowed them to parent their son at the same time, live in the same house, but go on with their own independent lives anyway. You know, like, like oh, he's the he's the nephew and I'm your maid. But, like, really, we're, hus- we're, we're, we're like, like a family. A family, yeah. Aww. Maybe not a romantic family, but a family. And so, I don't know, I just think that's really sweet. That's nice. Um... And I just like I to hope think, that's true. I know. I hope it's true also. <laughs> it's probably not. But, you know, I, I you don't know. You need to believe in something after all yeah. this, like, sadness. Right. Right. So I think our episodes go really well together yeah. because, um, you know, if you haven't listened to Sarah's episode yet while you're listening to this, you might want to head over there. I think they... You know, I mean, we're not going to, it's not, we're not going to test you on it or anything, but they, they just very They intersect much... in important ways. I mean, you mentioned the novels like Clarissa mm-hmm. um, and sort of uh, how those tropes relate to, you know, seduction and this cycle that you're identifying, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about in the other episode, Clarissa and those novels more in sort of how culturally they are depicting the way people are thinking about rape. Right. Um, But it's interesting to see how they kind of are, these two sort of worlds intersect in really important ways. Because seduction is an important part of trying to understand this weird spectrum between, you know, sex and coerced sex and rape, right? That's kind Mm -hmm. of bouncing around between those two poles. And that's kind of why I focused on master-servant relationships so much. Because those are the ones that we can't know. Yeah. Um, And so... In many cases, um, you know, every single person in the 18th century who knew about this event could have been like, oh, that's not rape, that's seduction. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the person, the woman who who was in the sexual relationship could have said no mm-hmm. um, and could have continued to say no throughout every single act. And right. um, it doesn't, you know, um, or the in this environment when you're desperate for work and it's labor rich, there's not, there, you know, lots of unemployment. If you're choosing between, Hey, I'm going to live on the streets and be a beggar or I have to have sex with this person. I don't want to have sex with. And so yeah. for many women, it was a very easy choice. Yeah. And that is how that, you know, the slide into prostitution, you can kind of see what they mean because, mm-hmm. um, you're having sex with your master to not get fired. Right. You're getting some money out of it, kind of, but, like, not really. You just never had any power to begin with. Right. Um, so. Yeah. So are you familiar with, with Les Miserables, the musical Les Miserables? A little bit. So, the, I mean, this is what you're describing. It occurred to me the whole time you're talking, but it, what you're describing is very much the story of Fantine, the mm-hmm. character who works at the beginning. She works in um, Jean Valjean's factory, and she is working... Because her child has been, she's got her child living with a family out in the country. And she, they tell her that this family is like real nice and they're taking good care of their daughter. And they're, but really they're just horrible people and they're extorting her, you know. Yeah. Um, but she believes, you know, she's working to make more and more money because they're demanding more and more money for the child. Mm-hmm. And then her, uh, the the foreman and the, the 
uh, factory sort of starts harassing her and insinuating that he wants to have sex with her. And she ends up having to like leave the factory in disrepute, you know, and then she has no other choice. So she ends up selling all of her hair. And then when she literally has no choices left, she becomes a prostitute. So it's like other people see this as like, oh, this Fontaine is like, you know, she's disgusting. You know, she's a liar. She has a moral failing on her part. Exactly. That started with the very first failure that she yes because she had had she was seduced by a a wealthier man who then abandoned her pregnant at the very that's how it all started right Right. she allowed herself to be seduced so it was her fault yep um and then it it, she you know it goes down and down and down and down and down and it's all um because she has no other choice right and then eventually she does she just kind of dies right and it's and it's sad it's just they so you know and they did like i said they did in that narrative of um, Mary Adams, who was eventually executed at Tyburn, people did say, oh, well, that first master's son, who was, like, the first one to, uh-huh. like, defile her, he's really to blame. Right. He started this right. going. Um, so there, there was an idea that, that men um, Were had a hand in this. somehow complicit. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's also that idea of, like, once a woman has sex before marriage, she's ruined. ruined. Yeah. That that cultural understanding is part of the problem. Right. And the other part of the problem is that economic imperative piece of it where nobody's realizing, hey, um, you know, this downfall happens because of the way we have structured our economies and because of the way mm-hmm. that we value or devalue um, female labor and because mm-hmm. of the way that we value and devalue um, care work or because of the way that women have no way of surviving unless mm-hmm. – they do these horrible things and then we call them whores for doing horrible things. So it's right. sort of like, um, yeah, there's some similarities like with the rape thing. You don't have a choice. You're, yeah. you're either dead or you're a whore. Right. You know, and in this situation, you're dead or you're a whore. Yeah, um, either way. For different yeah. reasons. For different <laughs> but, reasons, but yeah. But related, very kind much of so. Ends up in that same yeah situation. Yeah. Right. One thing that I find really that does give me sort of hope in in this particular, you know, the, the stories that you told in this episode is that there were in, you know, to varying different extents, but there were people who were trying, like actively trying to help, mm-hmm. right? Like people like this foundling hospital, which to us sounds like it still sounds like horrible and sad, right? <laughs> right? But like when these women had no other choice, there were people that were working to create solutions for them. Right. Um, and yes, they were investigated and yes, they were like, you know, if they were of ill repute, then they weren't going to help them. But like, it's still amazing to me that in this period that otherwise we're talking about like how horrible it was, right? There were these people who were trying to meet the need that these women had. Right. I think it's because they were people who saw the day to day and like they actually talked to some of these women and when they read their petitions, they saw, oh, well, this woman didn't have a choice like right. they might we can't even say she made a bad choice she didn't have one and yeah and they are starting to realize that mm-hmm. and um another thing to add is that um the felling hospital they, they did these investigations and they they marked you as unworthy if you lied at all mm-hmm. they didn't care if you lied to anybody they mm-hmm. just cared if you lied to them so mm-hmm. if you said to them yeah i just had random sex with this guy because i wanted to and then mm-hmm. i had this baby and whatever um they didn't care so much as if you lied to them and said you were married and they found out you weren't. Right. Then you're done. 
they held upheld these women's um you know uh lies they they concealed the pregnancies for them so when they went to get like a recommendation from someone Mm -hmm. they just kind of acted like they wanted to hire her as a servant and so they wanted a recommendation Uh, for that or whatever and so they didn't blow them them. yeah they didn't out them to to people Mm. at all um especially their current like usually when they were dropping their child off they had a contingent place so they had found a place as a maid or a wet nurse or like a whatever you know um in a domestic service position but and then they would tell she would tell the householder hey i have a child the householder would say okay i will hire you but you have to do you have to get rid of the child mm-hmm. so when they went to the founding hospital they were kind of assured that the founding hospital would take them if they said hey i have this position with this new person they know nothing about my past um and, you know, the founding hospital didn't contact them and didn't yeah. say a thing and mm. allowed women to do it anonymously um, because they realized a lot of it comes from they thought women would kill their children if they didn't have this option. It, so a lot of it comes from yeah. those infanticide um, narratives from the 17th century that people were reading in the 18th century. Yeah. And so a lot of them were thinking, well, women are horrible and just keep killing their kids. Like, let's <laughs> let's right. give them better options. So, so that was part of it, yeah. too. And also there's a bit of that, you know, that thing, like, I don't know, I, I don't mean to pick on Catholics, but it reminds me of, like, party and do whatever you want and then, like, go to church on Sunday and, you know, go to confection and you're fine. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bit of this um, partitioning of your lives and, you know, right. there's this licentious um, sex pleasure culture going on right, in the city. Right, yeah. Uh, and, you know, but then there's also all these people acting all, like, respectable and uh, above it all and, like, that's... You know, mm-hmm. and then there is more pragmatic people who are like, hey, these are the results of right these things that we enjoy. And right. we understand that people are going to have sex before they're married because that's just what people do. Because that's what I did. And that's mm-hmm. what everyone else did. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's try to find a way to help them in their lives so that they can kind of, like, have their cake and eat it, too. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's not to say that the women didn't suffer anyway, but it they noticed how hypocritical it was. Right. Um, stuff. Um, check us out on Twitter at dig underscore history. We have Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Dig History Pod Squad. We have uh, Instagram. We have... No Instagram. Nope. No, we don't. We don't have an Instagram. <laughs> well, I mean, we sort of have an Instagram. <laughs> okay, we have Pinterest. We also, you can find our uh, episodes on YouTube. And, you know, if you have um, some time, we would love it if you would uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. Mm-hmm. If you have any, like, feedback for this episode, you want to talk to us about stuff that you thought was interesting in this, we just want to get be part of the conversation. I, Marissa mentioned we do have that that Facebook group, which is a perfect place to like keep the conversation going. But you can also reach us at uh, our email is hello at digpodcast.org. And digpodcast.org is our website. You can find show notes and transcripts for our episodes. Indeed, you can. So we will uh, catch you on the flip side. Catch you on the flip flop. Mariners, like the one who seduced poor Mary Pilkington. You're just making shit up now. Mermy Perverton. Okay. Um, wait, it's wait, my turn. That's you. I was like, wait, Marissa, you gotta let me talk. <laughs> Do I know? In 1777, Chief Justice Lord Manfield. Mansfield. Sorry. It's Mansfield. I like as Lord in, Manfield. As in Mansfield. Mansfield. I like Manfield better. Sorry. The city was home to merchant mariners as well as demobilized. Mariners. Oh, mariners. Sorry. <laughs> Mariner, we. Oh, I was thinking merchant marine. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
No. <laughs> Reminds me of um, Hotel Transylvania. The people who get married. <laughs> In 1777, Chief Justice Lord Manfield. Oh my God. Sorry. <laughs> After I, I that whole like thing, I just said it again. The Hardwick Act. The Hardwick. The, the, the. It's in English. <laughs> my my throat stopped working. Was made public after a raid on a brothel owned by Philip Church. Brothel? So, brothel. Um, I feel like I just read a tweet about something else crazy that the Fowling Hospital has in their records. I don't know. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Seems related. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There, um, well, Anne Little just went to the Foundling Museum a couple months ago, so it might have been her. 